How are you doing? It is almost Christmas time and this is a Christmas time offer for you for being a loyal listener. Join us on Patreon and you get 15% discount for the annual subscription. You're going to get first dibs on tickets for Dalky, for Kilconomics and for live podcasts. You're going to be part of our book club, which I'm launching in January. You're going to get access to my monetary economics course, the one I gave in Trinity, and you're going to get a sort of a sub-stack backdrop of all sorts of articles that go into making these podcasts. So join us, patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams, between now and Christmas Day, and you get 15% discount for the annual subscription. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Uh, it is again coming up to Christmas. We were talking about diasporas there the other day and a lot of very, very good feedback on that one. The one about Shane McGowan, the yep. power of diasporas and maybe going into this notion of a second Irish Republic and how that would look and feel and what that would do to diasporas. And in fact, what I always believe is that we should include Irish people abroad much more in what's going on here at home. But John was uh, taking it to heart last night <laughs> because he went out with his cousin from, from California and it's yeah. and it's only midweek and you've a massive head in you. Oh, man. I you, you know that kind of thing? It was, it was, we had a great night, myself and my cousin Pat, and we had a lovely meal and it was all really civilised until it wasn't. <laughs> And, then, and I don't know at what point it just we fell off the cliff and it was madness. And I ended up, what did I do? Stupidly ended up walking home from town. Took me two and a half hours or whatever. Well, How is Larry? But if you saw if you saw a very, very contented looking gentleman walking along the Stalorgan Jill Carriageway last night, it was one John Davis having left his Irish American cousin. In yeah. the lurch, somewhere don't, don't in town. Nowhere, somewhere actually. in town. And of course, you, of course, have the lovely diaspora thing. And you know where I'm going today? Where? That great diaspora community. Up north. East Belfast. <laughs> I've gone to the Irish part. Woo. Who doesn't want to be Irish? Yeah. That part. So you go into town with your cousin. Yeah. And I go to East Belfast. <laughs> you go to a swanky restaurant. I go to a leisure centre in East Belfast. Anyway, we want to talk about geopolitics today because... I don't know about you, but over the last couple of weeks, there is a real sense of geopolitics shifting dramatically. And there's a real sense of a weakened centre, and that centre would have been the United States. And there's a sense that the United States' enemies all around the world 
are getting one up on them. And so it's as if, John, for the Biden administration, there's just too many crises to deal with. Yeah, like, yeah, Imagine yeah. that every morning they're getting up and saying, oh, man, not yeah. another one. I mean, it, there, there is a kind of a, I don't know, just talking to people, there's a real anxiety. Yeah. And it's because of so many crises, as you say. And it's all, they're all coming at the same time. Yeah. And they're yeah. all weakening the Americans. Yeah. So we're going and to Europeans, talk, I'd we're say. Gonna, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, and Europeans. So our yeah. neck of the woods, right? Yeah. So we're going to talk to Fiona Hill in a couple of minutes. Fiona Hill was the special advisor to Russia for three American presidents. An yeah. amazing person. Yeah. And we're delighted to bring this conversation to you because she's a real gem. I've known her for a while. She's an amazing, amazing person. But we're first going to talk about Kissinger, John. Well, as we said on Tuesday's podcast, we had an image of Kissinger and Shane McGowan baiting lumps out of each other outside the pearly gates. With the USA biscuit tin. With the USA biscuit tin. Because, of course, Kissinger died on the same day yeah. as Shane McGowan. Now, Kissinger was this larger-than-life character behind the scenes, wasn't he? And he was, yeah. he was hated. But you had the opportunity to speak to I, him. I met him and I spent some time with him and I interviewed him for a show I did years ago on TV3. In actual fact, if you look back in it now, I think it's online, the interview with me and Kissinger, I just look like a child. Yes. It's just hilarious. Yes, yeah, yeah. But the thing about Kissinger, if you felt that he was the Prince of Darkness, and many people did, it was confirmed that day by the fact that he had a cataract operation and he couldn't actually look into the light. So he had to shoot the entire video, the entire interview in the half light. So it looked as if this Prince of Darkness was talking to me from, the, right, from the corner yeah, of his eye. It is eye. dark, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but it was really, yeah, well, it was a fascinating, look, one of the beautiful, one of the great things about doing these sort of jobs is you get to meet fascinating people. Yeah. And Kissinger, whatever you think of him, was a fascinating person. Yeah, yeah. And a, 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 an enormous giant of geopolitics and of strategy and of what we're about to talk about, the global geopolitical backdrop and the game. And what was interesting, because I looked at that interview you did with Kissinger, you asked him, one of the questions you asked him was about nation building. And it kind of feeds into this week's theme for us, which is diaspora and nations and okay. what it means to be... But let's have a listen to what you asked him and his answer to that. Do you think in the 90s, President Clinton's period in office and its foreign policy was almost an aberration, the idea of nation building? You know, it depends what you mean by nation building. It is sort of presumptuous for one nation to say, we know what it takes to build a nation. And especially when you deal in nations like Afghanistan. And also you have to have some historic understanding. When the Balkan crisis was really an outgrowth of hundreds of years of history, and without an understanding of the conflict between Islam and Christianity in the Balkans, and between uh, the various empires that had ruled there, uh, the individual events of the 90s were very hard to understand. Well, I mean, I think what he's talking about there is the essential nature of history, knowledge of cultures, all yeah. that stuff. So let's just move now to talk to Fiona Hill about the state of play of geopolitics. And as I said, you said you got that anxiety. I think a lot of people have this sense that, you know, two or three years ago, 
there was one world, but it seems we were moving into a very, very different world. And yeah. one thing Kissinger did was he navigated all those worlds yeah. across an entire century. So let's go and let's talk to Fiona Hill. Fiona, lovely to see you. Let us just quickly talk about this week, Henry Kissinger dying. Now, Henry Kissinger, we're all, I'm also talking to you on the day that Napoleon was crowned emperor. After the battle and victory of French victory, Republican victory at Austerlitz, right? So we're in all sorts of big territory. But Fiona, your, your life, your studies is all about being geopolitics, the, what we used to call the great geostrategic game. What Kissinger said to me was fascinating. He said, you really have to understand the culture and history of a place before you can start talking about nation building our geostrategy, our politics. And in a way, that's your game. You've really understood the history of Russia and Ukraine, etc. To what extent was Kissinger on that issue spot on? Well, I mean, obviously, personally, I, I do think he was spot on on that um, issue. He was a historian himself. He was a professor, you know, at Harvard, uh, where I did my uh, graduate uh, studies. You know, everybody thought of him as Dr. Kissinger. He wasn't just Secretary Kissinger. He was uh, first and foremost, actually, a, you know, pretty skilled historian and academic. And of course, he was uh, somebody who was an expert on um, the history of diplomacy. And he would, no doubt, if he'd been um, here today, instead of us just marking his passing after an incredible hundred years, I mean, his history himself, after a whole um, century of life and all the things that he's uh, seen. But he would have also been talking about the significance of Austerlitz, the significance of Napoleon being crammed emperor, uh, the whole impact that the Napoleonic era has in uh, shaping the whole future of Europe from that point on. We've got, you know, also the backdrop of the Ridley Scott uh, movie just coming out. I don't know whether Ridley Scott was also thinking about um, having the movie coming out to mark Napoleon's crowning as emperor. Maybe he was. And I don't know whether, you know, they're showing it at Austerlitz, you know, right now as kind of previews of, uh, of the movie. But here is somebody, Napoleon, who not just made a mark on the thinking of Henry Kissinger, who's written, of course, numerous books about that kind of grand period in European history, the concerts of Europe with all the, the great uh, leaders getting together, histories of diplomacy. But someone who, in the case of Napoleon, becoming a massive cultural figure, in addition to giving us all kinds of you know, breakthroughs on measurements and uh, thinking about regulations, the metric system, you know, the kind of thinking about the, the ways that empires uh, conduct themselves. I mean, knowing all of that, of course, you know, here in Ireland uh, was also very much buffeted by all of the ongoing effects from all of these activities. Um, of course, the Duke of Wellington, who later, you know, clashed most famously with Napoleon, was no stranger to these shores here either. So, you know, one way or another, most of Europe was touched, you know, by Napoleon and by, you know, the consequences of that anniversary that you're marking yeah, no, it's an interesting thing. I was actually reading, and this sounds kind of quite pretentious, but John know I read bizarre books. I'm reading a guy Indeed called... I'm reading a fellow called Duff Cooper, who was a <laughs> British diplomat. Uh, his uh, yeah. his uh, biography of Talleyrand, who was Napoleon's foreign right, minister. Right. But there's a very interesting piece that Talleyrand goes from France before Napoleon, during the middle of the revolution, about uh, in, I think about 1794, goes to talk to William Pitt in London and the deed he's trying to do is he's trying to get a peace between France and England and Britain. But what he's dangling to Pitt is the base that he says, we'll keep Ireland out of this. We'll keep Ireland out of this. How don't worry. Don't worry about your Western side there. We'll sort that out. We will not involve ourselves with Irish revolutionaries because that's what the Brits were worried about. They, you know, mm. Ireland was going to be the place where France or Spain was of going course, to actually invent yeah. England from. So it is, it is fascinating to do all this history. But let me come back to you, Fiona, right? Because I find it 
amazing. I, we chatted last year at Jockey and you told me the relation between you, your family, the northeast of England and the miners of Donbass and how you got into your the sort of Russian side of your of life, which has been your huge academic interest. When I was, you know, growing up in northern England, my dad had been a coal miner. I mean, he was a former, you know, coal miner by the time I came along. I mean, he'd lost his job in the mines over and over again because the mines were already in terminal decline. He'd had the nationalisation of the industry after World War II. In fact, all the heavy industry in, in Britain was nationalised after World War II because it had been cut off from international commerce for so long. Everything was bankrupt. And so all of the heavy industry is pretty much you know, obviously centred in Northern England, places like Manchester and, you know, Liverpool and elsewhere. But Northern England is really a, a concentration, steel, coal, shipbuilding, you know, you name it, the railways. And then, you know, in the 1980s, all of that crashes down all at once because of the radical privatisation, you know, under Margaret Thatcher, you know, beginning uh, 1981 uh, onwards. My dad had, you know, long left uh, the coal mines by the time Thatcher came along, but the whole mentality in the region, certainly my dad's mindset, was very much shaped by being a coal miner. And back in the 1920s, the miners of my region in County Durham had forged ties with miners of the Donbass. Donetsk, the capital of Donbass, as a region then, this is, of course, when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Nobody was really thinking about Donbass being in Ukraine at that uh, particular juncture. Donetsk was one of these, you know, great, huge industrial cities of Europe that had been built up by foreign capital. I mean, it's actually yeah. the same all the way around, you know, Britain, you know, Germany and elsewhere. You had investors from Germany, from the United States, from all over the place. And Donetsk used to be known as Huesovka after Mr. Hughes, a Welsh coal it. baron. I love it. Who also um, builds up, you know, the, the, the coal mines there and, you know, one of the steelworks and brings over workers from Wales and, you know, elsewhere to to work in those mines. And then these ties after the Russian Revolution, because this is like, you know, 1880s, 1890s kind of thing. After the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks, you know, uh, are building up these showcase mines and they want to show them off to the, you know, the miners of the world, miners of the world, proletariat and workers of the world unite kind of thing. And the miners of County Durham sent multiple delegations over there in the 20s Including one run basically by a group of miners' wives who were very active to see, well, what was mining like in the Donbass and could they get any ideas, you know, for how to do things differently? I think they actually came away a bit suspicious about communism and Bolshevism and there's an effort, you know, to root <laughs> well, out communists and Bolsheviks in the, uh, you they, know, the they miners' did, associations. They had a better time. understanding of it than George Bernard Shaw then. They, they, probably, they probably did, actually. But you know, then you fast forward to the 1980s and, you know, the miners' strike. And these ties have, you know, they've probably loosened up over time, but the miners of Donbass, along with miners from around the world, in solidarity for the miners' strike in the UK, raised money for the miners and their families. And some of the money from miners from Donbass ended up in a fund for the children of miners or former miners. And I get £100 from this, handed to me in an envelope, actually, <laughs> to be able to wow. go and um, study Russian, an intensive Russian language course, you know, basically in the middle of the miners' strike. It was, it was an amazing experience here because I wanted to study Russian. It's against the backdrop of all the war scares with the Soviet Union. And I just had to, you know, go up, show up there. They had to look at my dad's miner's work record to prove he had been a coal miner. And then a man walked off and came back with an envelope and said, there you go, Pep, there's £100. Don't spend it all at once. And when you come back, come and tell us what you did with it. And I went back a bit later and they said, oh, go on then, translate something into Russian for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that story because it, you, what you're talking about, it, it is everyone is living history. 
And all these things are unbelievably consequential. And then, you know, you go from, you know, the mining towns in Durham to being the advisor on Russia to the Secretary of State of the United States. I mean, this is an extraordinary journey. It is. And look, I mean, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to focus on now is trying to think about how other people can have these kinds of opportunities. Because the one thing that we really do need in international affairs is different perspectives. Yeah. You know, everybody fixates again on, you know, Henry Kissinger, but think about it. He brought a really unique perspective to the things that he looked at. I mean, he's very controversial, obviously, yeah. uh, on so many different fronts. But, you know, the reason that he was, you know, still respected on issues of the analysis that he made, the, the books that he wrote, his grasp of history was because he had a unique perspective, a unique voice and a new, unique set of insights. He was also you know, pretty conniving, <laughs> cunning, oh, you know, canny, you know, as you kind of say, you know, in Northern England person. I mean, he was you know, a pushover, he's very cynical, you know, and, and, and he had a real kind of sense of, you know, the dirty nature of politics, including from his historical work. I mean, you know, when he mentioned people like and invoked Talleyrand or, you know, Metternich, or, you know, Napoleon, Bismarck, you know, these were not nice people. You know, they weren't out there thinking about the overall well-being and welfare of, you know, people writ large. They were, you know, very cynically thinking about how to maximise the position of the country that they or the, the sovereign uh, that they served at the moment. And, you know, if we think, you know, beyond all of that, everybody is bringing a different lens. And we're at one of those inflection points. I mean, it's a pretty catastrophic moment that we're in at the moment given the war in Ukraine, what's happening in the Middle East, but we've got conflicts in Yemen and Sudan and Ethiopia. We've got climate change, massive demographic uh, shifts. We've hit 8 billion people who would have thought we'd hit 8 billion people, you know, back in the 1980s, you know, for example, when, you know, I started off, I couldn't imagine a world with 8 billion people because we keep exponentially expanding in our population and massive technical change. I mean, you know, you and I may be obsolete in terms of podcasts soon. We'll have AI versions of yeah. David Mac Williams and his, you know, kind of podcast for people be wondering, you know, what's happened to the real David Mac Williams? Where's he's gone? But this guy's entertaining, this, you know, <laughs> alternate <laughs> this robot. Uh, you know, alternate <laughs> version of you. you know? no. So, I mean, we, we're at this one of these moments where we think, you know, where are we heading here? And we need to find a way of bringing, using place I'm here at Dingle now, the other voices in the music, but other voices into the mix. When we see through all the protests or all the outrage about what's happening in the Middle East, the fact in Ukraine that you've got Ukrainian people who are fighting. It wasn't just Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership who were pushing back against uh, the Russian invasion of February 2022. It's ordinary people. Yeah. And people are now saying, we don't just want to be data points in history. We just don't want to be the, you know, the unsung heroes, the people who you know, get written about in an aggregate form. We want to say as well. And so we're in that moment where you know, it's not the moment of Talleyrand and Metnik and Bismarck or Napoleon. It's a moment where people are demanding a say. And we've got to kind of figure out about how they make their voices heard. And that's really, you know, what motivated me when I was a kid. I was trying to understand what was happening here, what was happening to us. Everything seemed to be done to you by either large impersonal forces or the decisions of others. And how do you kind of like figure out to get yourself in that position where you might be able to influence things, hopefully shape something, but have a voice at least saying, hang on a second, you know, kind of why, why are we doing this, you know, for example? We're, we're talking about this time when people want to be mandated, when people want to have a say in what is going on. And yet the, the real politique of the world is still very much a chess board, a chess game played by, unfortunately, blokes, middle-aged blokes in the main. 
And one of the person you were talking there about mendacity and cunning and etc. And that leads me to thinking about Putin. You know that 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 here is a product of Leningrad in the late forties, early fifties. He's a product of the Soviet Union. He's spending COVID reading all sorts of fabricated or maybe not fabricated Russian history, and he arrives at this conclusion that now is the time that he strikes to change to be the big man in Russian history. Because of the war in the Middle East, we're not focusing so much on Ukraine. But Ukraine and Russia is your neck of the woods. It's your backyard. What is going on there right now? What do you think? Where are we in that particular conflict? Well, there's also an interesting link to what we've just been talking about, because one kind of little known you know, side element to all of this is that uh, Putin was a great admirer of Henry Kissinger. I didn't and, know that. And, you know, in some respects, Henry Kissinger was his favourite American and maybe also his favourite German, because, you know, Putin's also you know, fluent in German and is quite obsessed with Germany, including having spent time in the KGB in East Germany and Dresden and the early parts of his career. But in terms of Kissinger, what he was interested in was exactly what you've just outlined there, this kind of great geopolitical thinker. And he wanted to, in a way, cloak himself in the mantle of Henry Kissinger. He wanted to be seen to be consulting with Henry Kissinger, you know, almost, you know, kind of in a way of giving him legitimacy for the way that he's thinking about things. And, you know, obviously, Kissinger probably got, you know, quite a bit out of those exchanges as well. I mean, they had direct exchanges and then people in Putin's entourage would meet with people from Kissinger's associates. You know, Kissinger had a consulting company as well. And the, Putin would make a big deal. In fact, he even reached out to Kissinger to sort of initiate all of this in the first instance, because Putin likes to see himself, just as you suggested there, as the big man astride the world stage. And I think over time, I mean, remembering that, you know, as we come up now to December of 2023 into 2024, Putin comes into office as the acting president in December 1999. So he's going to be, he went to his quarter century here, into the, you know, his 24th year, yeah. either as prime minister or president of Russia. And he's got over time that kind of sense of himself as being one of those big men on the world stage. And he has equally in his obsessions with Russian history, of course, that leads you to Napoleon. Napoleon's March on Moscow, which, of course, was a bit fateful, to say the least. Thinking about people like Talleyrand, you know, who are also these protagonists in uh, Russia's history, or Bismarck, or Metternich, or, you know, on and on and on. I mean, that's a kind of mishmash of time frames there. But, you know, these are all the men who shaped the world. And that's what Putin thinks the world is about, is about men shaping it, small numbers, in darkened rooms with secret diplomacy, not all this public out there, you know, with people, very messy social media. Social media is a tool to manipulate, as is artificial intelligence. But the real deals for Putin are done in that way of secret, you know, diplomats meeting on the sides of rivers or in, you know, luxury hotels, probably in Dubai, you know, these days rather than on the banks of the River Elbe or something like this. And that's his, that's what he wants to do. And in fact, what he wants to do with Ukraine is something that would have been very familiar from the pages of books written by Dr. Kissinger, the historian, and his big diplomacy book or some of the other you know, books on European history, which was Putin wants to have the partition of Ukraine, if not the recognition of Ukraine, fully in Russia's sphere of influence at some sit-down with the United States, with uh, the US president. And not messing about with all these Europeans with all their different views and certainly not listening to what the Ukrainian people themselves or European peoples writ large would actually want to see uh, in an alternative fashion. Putin doesn't believe that individuals, either as people or collectively as peoples, have any kind of agency here. 
unless they are the top level leaders, the presidents, the prime ministers, the kings, the queens, you know, of old. And but Fiona, if we'd been talking, because I, mean, I find that fascinating that he is Napoleonic in his thinking, in his strategy. But had we been talking, let's say, 18 months ago, certainly 12 months ago, there was a huge amount of optimism on the Ukrainian side. I went to Ukraine last January. When, yeah. when I was talking to people in Kiev, they were saying, look, we're, we've got this new counteroffensive coming. We've got this new army. It's trained up by NATO. It's going to make a difference, right? It didn't make a huge difference as far as we can see. So is Putin sitting in the Kremlin with his chessboard and thinking things are going my way? Well, he's definitely probably not sitting with a chessboard, um, but he's definitely <laughs> sitting there thinking that things are definitely going his way. Putin is somebody who was expert at judo. And the way that he thinks about it is in bouts and tournaments. You know, if he you can win on points or you can, you know, have a there's not a knockout blow in judo, but you know, you, you get your opponent to the mat. But you yeah. don't always win, you know, your bouts, but you move on your way through the tournament and you know, eventually, you know, you prevail. And that's kind of what Putin's probably sitting about thinking, how does he get everyone off balance? And how does he fake them out? You know, how does he recover from maybe a misstep at some point? And let's admit it, he made a massive misstep, not just a misstep, but one heck of a blunder. And in fact, the, the Ukrainians did throw him to the mat in many respects in the very beginnings of the invasion. He thought that he would have intimidated Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, again, he wasn't factoring them in. They didn't think they would fight back. He certainly discounted the Ukrainian uh, military, and he did not think for a second that the Ukrainians would get any assistance from the US and from the West. I mean, he pretty much calculated that we'd be nowhere in sight because, you know, basically we'd not really done very much when Ukraine had been in jeopardy on other occasions. The gas turned off in 2006, the annexation of Crimea, the setting off of war in Donbass, efforts, in fact, to take over, you know, parts of Ukrainian territory rather extensively all the way down to Odessa at other points in that whole period of 2014 that, you know, fizzled out because he was trying to do it more with, you know, stirring up a lot of trouble like the done you know, in Donbass and sending in little green men, but it not to the same effect as they did in Crimea. But Putin sort of thought, well, nobody really did anything. And, you know, the poison Litvinenko, there was all this other stuff. You know, the, the West wasn't going to do much because everyone was addicted to Russian gas or Russian money. And, you know, everybody and their aunt was on the, you know, the payroll of, you know, some dirty Russian oligarch or, you know, the propaganda and influence operations were working. So he was literally thrown onto, not just the back foot, even onto his back by the immediate response of the Ukrainians. Because it's, you know, Zelensky famously says when everybody's trying to see if he wants to be evacuated, I don't want to ride and want ammunition. Within, you know, two weeks, the Ukrainians have really put pair to Russia's plans of the decapitation of the Ukrainian government, putting their own people in and then, you know, taking over the country. Because, you know, the, the force that they sent in was big, 180,000, but it wasn't big enough to occupy because that wasn't what he was, he was expecting to have to do. He yeah. literally thought that the whole country would be on its knees immediately and that we'd just there for the taking. And then there'd eventually be some fake referendum, you know, et cetera. And then Ukraine would be begging to be in a union treaty with Russia, like Belarus was, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't happen like that. And it's just, you know, was uh, for Russia initially an unmitigated disaster. Now, this is where Putin is always plotting and thinking, OK, I got knocked down. I've got back up. And now I'm going to kind of think about how I get them down again. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of what we're seeing now. If we don't pay attention, you know, to what's happening here, Putin thinks that he can not just take out Ukraine over a longer period of the war of attrition, but also that he will 
basically take advantage of what's Ukraine fatigue or disappointment on the part of many backers of Ukraine that this counteroffensive didn't work. And that's the danger of social media, uh, or basically um, the world that we're in now, is that that got hyped. Yes. Part of it was to try to get people to support Ukraine and still be enthusiastic. But a lot of the Ukrainian military didn't want that to be hyped. Because if we went back to those wars that Kissinger was writing about, I mean, they weren't all public war plans. And, you know, lots of offensives didn't work. I mean, just thought, think about, you know, Napoleon prevails at Austerlitz, but what about Waterloo? We always talk about Napoleon's Waterloo, everybody's Waterloo. He, he could have actually even prevailed over the Duke of Wellington had not the Field Marshal Blücher come along, you know, kind of the last minute. All kinds of things go wrong, you know, for there's in Europe and then you're down again. Yeah. And this was kind of the problem of thinking about that counteroffensive that it would be decisive, you know, like one of those kind of great battles in yes. history before. But it's rarely like that. And so, you know, the problem is that this is a war where everyone is in, whether they like it or not, for the long haul, unless we can really kind of push you know, a fast forward on the diplomatic, you know, kind of front political front and showing that you know, Ukraine can really prevail and really defend itself so we can shift Putin's calculation. But right now, the whole global set of circumstances looks incredibly propitious for Putin. So when Putin is looking maybe not at the chessboard, but maybe at the, you know, the game of risk, you know, or something, global game of risk, or if he's reading through uh, Henry Kissinger's diplomacy book and he's kind of thinking about the world, it looks very beneficial for him. Yeah, there, there's a lack of uh, a waning resolve in the West. The unity was amazing and now is all crumbling. Everyone's worried about their domestic political situations. You've got this horror in the Middle East that everyone's diverted towards and Putin is trying to exploit that to the hilt totally shifted his position on Israel, all in on Iran, all in on criticizing Israel, all on, in on supporting Hamas, because he sees a huge global rift emerging between North and South, with the yeah. US being blamed for everything. Blamed for war in Ukraine, blamed for what's happened in uh, the Middle East, blamed for supporting Israel, blamed for this, blamed for that. Most of the rest of the world doesn't want the United States as a hegemon anymore, and yet, you know, paradoxically, they want the US to solve everything simultaneously. You know, we don't want you, but we do want you. We want you to fix this, but we actually would like you to go away. And this is just for Putin. This is brilliant. This is something that he can exploit, that he can manipulate. And Putin's trying to now present himself as um, perhaps not the Napoleonic figure, but certainly the kind of like the vanguard, the champion of the downtrodden, the unaligned, the national liberation movements, which is so ironic, you know, for a country that's actually trying to carry out a post-imperial reoccupation of, you know, a former colony. But most of the rest of the world thinks of colonial imperial powers as those that have overseas colonies and then overseas settlements. And as far as they're concerned, Russia was just a, you know, country that expanded out its territory, contracted and is just trying to, you know, extend its territory out again, is in territorial disputes. And Putin can really play into that because, you know, for Africa, Latin, South America, most of Asia, you know, the Russian empire was, it wasn't really an empire for them. Yeah, there was just a kind of a big state with, as I said, finding or contracting borders because it didn't have overseas colonies. In fact, it actually did slightly overseas, Alaska. You know, uh, uh, Russians did have Alaska until the 1860s when they sold it to the US. And at, at various points, they actually had, they didn't quite call them colonies, but they had them settlements down in California, all the way down um, the, you know, the coastal strip in California up until 1825. So the Russians did actually go overseas. It's just that they you know, they're not associated, obviously, with colonizing Africa or 
Latin and, you know, South America, for example. Yeah, and they're not associated with being of great maritime powers. Therefore, they never really owned the seas. No. So therefore, they never really took the easy option. Because the easy options get a big boat, go up the bay, the gunboat diplomacy, whereas the Russian option was always going over land, which is a much more difficult game. They did actually try uh, the um, the naval maritime, it but it was an absolute and disaster, yes. In um, 1905, with the Russo-Japanese War, they sent the Baltic fleet, the Baltic fleet, let's think about this, to what's, you know, the, the Korean peninsula, because they were trying to expand over, over land down the Korean peninsula. And at that point, of course, they didn't have a Asia-Pacific fleet because they didn't actually really have all the railroads there. And they used to have to send their troops over land on foot. They were just kind of building up the rail network and, you know, like everyone else was in that, you know, kind of time period. So they send the Baltic fleet, it takes forever because they have to sail, you know, up the Baltic, you know, probably through the English Channel, around the North Sea, around the top of Britain. I don't know, you know, which route exactly they went, but they've got to go all the way around the world. And they get there just off the Korean Peninsula and the Japanese Navy sank them. And then you have... The, the battleship Potemkin, then you have the revolution of 1905. And, exactly. you, know, you know, so but can we, before you go, we started with this Kissinger-esque understanding, rightly or wrongly, of the world, knowing history, knowing culture, knowing the big players, all that sort of stuff. Within 11 months, we may well have your old mate back in the White House because you've had your toe-to-toe with Donald Trump very publicly a few years back. What happens to the great geopolitical game if Donald Trump is back in the White House in 12 months' time? Well, it'll be a great geopolitical mess because, you know, here you have someone who's completely capricious, vengeful, and focused on themselves. So it won't be, you know, how does America play in this game? It'll be how does Donald Trump play in this game? And how does he, you know, basically focus on his own self-aggrandizement and self-glorification? So you're pretty fearful. I'm very concerned. Yeah, but look, you can't rely on America for 100 years to kind of, you know, basically fix everything. It's clear now that nobody wants that world hegemon. They don't want to be caught between the US and China very much. Nobody wants a Cold War. Nobody wants a world hegemon. Everybody wants to have a voice. But they also don't want the United States dragging everybody else down, you know, by a pretty aggressive and vociferous minority vote. Not all, of course, but the problem that we've got into this mindset as well is it's almost as if people are supporting their own team. You'll get people who are very critical of Trump, they completely see this and then say, but yeah, but I I couldn't vote for Biden or I couldn't vote for a Democrat. So instead of thinking about voting for democracy, they can't see past, you know, these partisan divisions. And that's incredibly dangerous. But that's kind of, you know, where we are right now in the United States. Fiona Hill, all the way from Dingle. Lovely to see you. Lovely to talk to you. Uh, Absolutely wonderful. And we will chat again very soon and safe. I know you're going to Washington tomorrow, so safe home. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That conversation with, with Fiona Hill is amazing. And by the way, I actually had to cut that down quite a bit. We Actually, Mac, we need to get her back. Yeah, well, we can't. I mean, she's she's great. I mean, again, it's it's also that North of England accent. It's yeah, that, well, that it's adds that, to it as well. It's yeah. also the North of England sort of no-nonsense attitude. No, she's, yeah. a, she's a really an amazing, amazing person. But looking forward for the, the next year, she paints a, a picture of America that, that that it's on the precipice. And, and it's precarious now, especially if Trump... Well, it's, 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 it's not just Trump. It's like she painted a picture of Putin. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, and he's sitting there and everything is going now according to his plan. Yeah, yeah. And you can be rest assured Xi sitting there and thinking something broadly similar. And I think what she's... Fiona's frame just there, John, is many conversations we're going to have in the coming 12 months, which is the diminished role of the United States, not just diminished economically, because it hasn't really been diminished economically, but diminished politically by virtue of the persona in the yeah, White House. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing, if you go back to Kissinger, Kissinger was a great, great student of those big men in power, right? So Talleyrand, Napoleon, yeah. Metternich, Bismarck, and on, of course, to Hitler and Stalin and yeah. all those guys, right? But again, it was a study of realpolitik against the background of the personalities involved. And that is what we sometimes forget, is that although there is a bureaucracy and there is a State Department and there are American interests, people make the decisions yeah. at the end of the day. And if the person making the decisions is unhinged, the decision will be, unfortunately, unhinged. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.